Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. As we continue our journey through this perhaps greatest epistle of the New Testament, the Grand Canyon of Gospel Exposition. After a meaty introduction to the letter where Paul has celebrated the gospel of God, of which he is a minister, and expressed the priorities of his apostolic ministry concerning the Roman church, we now arrive at essentially the thesis statement for the book of Romans. Uh, This is what Paul will spend the next 15 chapters unpacking and applying. Martin Luther, the German pastor, theologian, monk, and came to be known as a reformer in the church, Martin Luther wrestled hard against these verses and experienced deep spiritual anguish and anxiety concerning the righteousness of God before his conversion. I want to read to you some of, some of Luther's own words. Uh, this is a couple of years after uh, what he would consider this sort of conversion experience, but he's looking back on how he was engaging with the righteousness of God, specifically as it is revealed here in uh, verses 16 and 17 of Romans 1. <clears throat> he says in his wrestling with uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, he says, up until then, it was not the cold blood about the heart, but a single word in chapter 1, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, that had stood in my way, that has stood in his way of really coming to understand what the good news was uh, that was being proclaimed here. He says, I hated that word, righteousness of God, which according to the use and custom of all the teachers, I had been taught to understand philosophically regarding the formal or active righteousness, as they call it, with which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners, eternally lost through original sin, are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue, that is the Ten Commandments, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel, and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience." We'll return to Luther's story in a little while, but for now, suffice it to say that these are consequential verses, not just for Martin Luther personally, but for the church collectively and indeed in the story of God's revelation in the scriptures. So Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, I will read these two verses for you, and then we will unpack them phrase by phrase. There's four clauses that make up these two verses, and we're just going to divide that clause by clause and see what is going on here. So here we go, Romans 1, beginning verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. There it is. The theme of Romans. I am not ashamed of the gospel, is the very first phrase. Actually, for I am not ashamed of the gospel is the very first phrase. Always important to notice the little words. The word for points us back to verse 15, what just came before it, where Paul had been expressing his eagerness to come to Rome and to minister among them and to impart spiritual strength. He said in verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. In other words, what he's saying is, the reason I'm eager to preach the gospel to you is because I am not ashamed of it. I'm not embarrassed by it. Why would he be ashamed? Let's broaden that. Why might somebody be ashamed of the gospel? I can think of at least two reasons, two possibilities. Number one, because the message seems ridiculous to the world. It seems utterly ridiculous. If you wanted to flip over to the very next book in the New Testament, the beginning of 1 Corinthians, Paul makes a very similar statement here in 1 Corinthians 1. Verse 18, he says, the word of the cross, what is that? The message about Christ crucified, right? The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is folly to those who are perishing. Utter foolishness. It sounds stupid. It sounds nonsensical. And he even goes on in that place to speak of how it, how it affects Greeks and Jews slightly differently, but no less negatively. So to Greeks, it seemed, it seemed just like nonsense. Why would you celebrate and proclaim a guy that was executed and say that that's where your salvation is? It's, it doesn't make any sense. And to the Jews, it's a stumbling block, he says, because the Jews, again, were expecting their Messiah to be a conquering military king. And he came suffering and bleeding and dying. And so both to Greeks and to Jews, the message of a crucified Messiah is utter absurdity. It's utter nonsense. And so one might be ashamed of the gospel because people think this is bananas. I wonder about your own life, people in your own circles. If you were to go into work tomorrow and gather your colleagues and say, hey, listen, I want to tell you all that you're all under the wrath of God because you're sinners and you need to be rescued. And the only chance you have, the only hope you have of being saved from your sin and given the hope of living forever after you die is if you would repent of your sins and trust in Jesus, this Jewish carpenter who lived 2,000 years ago who was executed on a cross, but he rose from the dead. And if you'll repent and trust in him, you'll be saved. Most people will look at you like you have a third eye. It's weird. It's a strange message, isn't it? That's the hope that we have. That's the message we proclaim. That's the gospel we've been given. And yet, sometimes we're very aware of how we're going to come across if we bring that message to bear in our relationships among work colleagues, among family members, among unbelieving friends or neighbors. 
So perhaps we may be ashamed of the gospel because we know that it lands very strangely or even in an unwelcome way, perhaps with hostility on the part of those who might hear it. So perhaps we're ashamed because the message seems ridiculous. Another possibility of why one might be ashamed, and this is theoretical, so don't, I'm not preaching heresy here, I promise. Theoretically, why one might be ashamed of the gospel is if it proved to be a failure or a fraud. If what I boast in and what I proclaim and what I'm banking on proves untrue, then I have been made a fool, right? So if the gospel isn't true, if Christ really hasn't been raised from the dead, what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? Then your, our preaching is vain, your faith is useless, you're still in your sins, right? So if we're banking on this thing and it proves to be a fraud, then we prove ourselves to be utter fools. We of all men ought to be pitied, said Paul in that chapter. You know, if I, if I brag all over social media and I'm trash-talking my friends about how my team is going to whoop up on your team, and then game day comes and my team goes out there and your team actually mops the floor with my team, what am I? I'm ashamed, right? I ought to be. If I have any sense of shame, I should be ashamed that my boasting and my bragging and my bold proclamations prove to be utterly false and not worthy of my hope and confidence. How much more would that be true of the gospel if it's not real, if it's not true? So one might be ashamed of the gospel if it proves to be a failure. It would put us to shame who proclaim it and bank upon it. Well, despite the foolishness of the message, it is what God uses to bring sinners to salvation. Though it's foolishness to the world, though it's folly to those who are perishing, said Paul in 1 Corinthians, it is to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You can call it foolish. I know that that's where the power of God really lives. And rest assured, the gospel does not put us to shame. God will not fail to keep the promises he's made for ages past, which are all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The gospel is not a fraud. The gospel is not a fake. It is worth our confidence and our trust and our bold proclamations about what is true now and what will be true in eternity. It is real. It is true. It is right. And so we need not be ashamed of the gospel, even knowing it seems like foolishness to the world. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Clause number two, why is he not ashamed of the gospel? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Again, the word for. Three out of the four clauses, by the way, in these two verses begin with the word for. You always have to consider how it's linked to what came before it. For it is the power of God. In other words, the reason I'm not ashamed of the gospel is because it is the power of God for salvation. 
I'm not ashamed of the gospel because that is where God works. That is where the power of God comes to bear on the heart and mind of sinners. And it converts them from death to life and it grows them from sinners to holy and it eventually and ultimately leads them to glory. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. There's no reason to be ashamed of this message because this is how God accomplishes his purposes. Now I want you to notice He doesn't say that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to those who do not believe. He doesn't only indicate here that the gospel is how sinners are converted. It is. He's not saying less than that. But I believe he's saying more than that. Consider who is his audience. Back in verse 7, he said, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So who is he writing to? He's writing to Christians. He's writing to the church in Rome. Those who already, presumably, believe this gospel and have been converted to faith in Christ and thereby are living in light of it. He says, The gospel is the power of God for salvation to those who are believing So this is not merely evangelism of the lost that's in view. This is not only the the past tense, if you will, of salvation. That is certainly true. I don't intend to discount that whatsoever. But that's only one third of, I think, what Paul really means here to include in this statement. And so I have a little table for you uh, that'll show up behind me here. Uh, Don't get spoiled. I know I've given you a couple of images like, uh, you know, in consecutive weeks, and that's dangerous, but here's a little chart for you. So salvation, when the Bible talks about us being saved, there's more than one sense in which it speaks of our salvation, or really even tenses of salvation. There's a past and a present and a future tense of our salvation. So that the past tense, when we're looking at what God has already done to save us, is what the Bible calls justification. We'll hear a good bit about that from the book of Romans, I assure you. And that is that we have been saved from sin's penalty. Already, for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ and repented of their sins, you've already been saved from the penalty of sin. You no longer bear it. You no longer have judgment coming. You have been spared from the wrath of God. That's already true because you've been justified. That is made righteous, declared righteous. The present tense of our salvation is sanctification. That's the, a process by which we become more like Jesus Christ. And so in that sense, we are being saved from sin's power. We're being saved from sin's power. More and more, day by day, increasingly, we learn by the power of the Spirit at work within us to defeat and fight against the sin and temptation that come our way. And you may not feel this happening in the moment, but usually if you look back over some years in your life, you might be able to tell something that I struggled with mightily years ago is not quite the same struggle that it used to be. I have seen the Lord grow me and and progress me in a particular battle or a particular temptation. That's what's going on here. You are being saved from sin's power. And then the future tense of salvation, that's there too. You will be saved, and the word for that is glorification. In other words, we will be 
given new and glorified states and, and capacity to receive and perceive and glory in all that God is for us in Christ in eternity. And so we've been saved from the penalty of sin. We're being saved from the power of sin. And one day in the future, we will be saved from sin's presence. It will be gone. It will be a distant memory. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that day. A life with no sin, a world without sin and brokenness, a church unstained by sin. I can't wait for that. So there's these three tenses of salvation, past, present, future. And I believe all of that is in view here in verse 16 where he says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. All of that is entailed here. It's the gospel, it's the message of Christ that accomplishes all of that work, past, present, and future It's not just unbelievers who need the gospel. I alluded to this last week, but we're obviously pressing into it a bit here. It's not just unbelievers who need the gospel. They do need the gospel. It is what they need. But brothers and sisters, so do you. So do I. We need God's work in the gospel every day of our Christian life. Because what is required for salvation Faith, right? From faith for faith. We'll get to that in a minute. But faith is the, the, the conduit uh, that brings God's grace to bear in our lives. And how is faith cultivated? If you look a little bit further in the book, Romans ten seventeen tells us faith comes through hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. What's the word of Christ? The message about Christ, which is the gospel. So what we need in order to have been saved and continue being saved and to one day be finally saved is regular, repeated hearing of the gospel. That's why he's eager to preach the gospel to these Christians who are in Rome. Because he's not ashamed of this message and he's not ashamed of it because this is where the power of God to save people lies in this message. He says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. On the back side of this, the gospel, it, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why does he say that? Well, because that's where all this started, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ is the continuation and really the culmination of their story. Right? The people of, of Israel, the, the Jewish people. It, it's their story. It's their scriptures. It was the prophecies that were given to them through their prophets, right? Under the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel, right? So it, it's their story that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 11, Paul says that, the, that Gentiles who believe upon Christ have been grafted in to the olive tree of Jewish covenant and identity, right? So the main trunk of the olive tree, as it were, of the people of God is Jewish. And non-Jewish people, Gentiles, who come to faith in Christ are being grafted into that trunk. It's not like it was Jewish and then takes a strong right turn and becomes Gentile. No, Gentiles get included by God's grace 
into the Jewish faith and story and tradition. So to the Jew first, because it's their story to begin with. And also to the Greek, because God in his mercy has widened, opened wide his arms and he's welcoming in people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language of the earth to become a part of this faith family. So to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So a word of, of application on all of this. Don't be embarrassed by the gospel. Don't be embarrassed by the gospel in at least two senses. First of all, in your evangelism, in your conversations with unbelievers or people who don't yet know Christ, proclaim Christ crucified and raised for sinners. This is how God saves people. It feels weird. It's a little uncomfortable. It can be socially awkward to be the guy that brings up the religious thing in the middle of a haircut or whatever else it is. But don't be embarrassed. This is how God saves people. A hearing of the message about Jesus Christ. So proclaim Christ crucified and raised for sinners. And in your own Christian walk, don't be shy about your ongoing need for God's word, for God's grace in Christ, for the nourishment of your soul by the gospel. Don't downplay it. Don't neglect it. Don't be embarrassed about it. Friends, I need this. I need God's word. I need to be among the gathered people of God to hear the word again and to see the gospel reenacted in the sacraments again. I need it. We need it. Don't be embarrassed about that. Be dogmatic and adamant about that. I can't go to the lake. I can't go to the game. I need the gospel. I need the word of God. Without a regular diet of gospel meditation, our souls languish. We grow distant from God and his people. Our spiritual fruit grows stale. It starts to get squishy. And little critters start crawling out of it. That's what happens. We need the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, over and over and over and over and over again. Don't be embarrassed by the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God for salvation, past, present, and future, to everyone who believes. Jew first and also Greek. Verse 17, third clause. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. There we are again with that little word, for. And that points us back to verse 16. In other words, the reason the gospel is the power of God for salvation is because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. In the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed, and that's what makes it powerful. It's not magic. It's not a, a mantra that we speak that has this strange, like, entrancing effect on people. It's what is revealed about God and his righteousness in the gospel. One commentator said that this verse points us to the God-centeredness of the gospel, teaching us that it is principally about God, what he is like, and what he has done through Christ. 
Now, I want you to observe that this is the first use of what is a key word in Romans, and it will show up all over the place as we're walking through these chapters, and that's the Greek word dikaiosune, which is translated as righteousness, and it's translated in a few different ways. It doesn't always look just like that in your English Bible. Sometimes it looks like righteousness or righteous. Sometimes it looks like just or justify or justified or justifier. Sometimes it has a negative applied to it, like unrighteous. All of those are from this same Greek word, dikaiosune, the same, this root word. And so we're going to hear this over and over again. In fact, that's why I've titled this entire series, Righteousness Revealed. That's what is in the gospel. It's the righteousness of God that is revealed there. I'm going to give you a little definition of righteousness. Here, I think righteousness of God means the character of God by which he unfailingly, eternally does that which is right and upholds the honor of his name. The character of God by which he unfailingly, eternally does that which is right and upholds the honor of his name. That's his righteousness. He always does what is right. He always does what is true to his nature. He always does what upholds the honor of his name in the world. And it's that righteousness of God, that character of always doing the right thing and upholding his honor that's revealed in the gospel, which makes it powerful to save. But wait a minute, you might think. Wouldn't the revelation of God's righteousness be bad news for sinners? Right? If we are unrighteous, if we are sinners, then why would it not be terrible news that in this message about Christ, we come to see the righteousness of God? Why would that not be bad news? If the gospel reveals to us the unswervingly just and holy character of God, who is our creator and our judge, then shouldn't this actually cause us not to celebrate, but to tremble? That's what Luther struggled with, wasn't it? He was terrified by the righteousness of God. He hated him for it. Because all he could see in it was his own condemnation. Under this righteousness of God, I am a worm with no hope. That's how it felt to Luther. Well, here's Luther's journey. Uh, here's where Luther's journey in Romans 1, I think, will help us in our own. Let me read you some more of his own words about his breakthrough regarding this verse. So after speaking about how much he wrestled with this and he hated God and he felt like troubled in conscience, he says this, Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, just asking him and asking him and seeking and studying, what does this mean, right? I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted at last. By the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. Namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, He who through faith is righteous shall live. 
there I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. That's Luther's breakthrough about these verses. So, so you see, the righteousness of God embedded in the gospel is not merely a fact that is shown to us. It is actually given to us as a gift. The big fancy theological word for that is imputed or imputation. The righteousness of God is imputed to the sinner by faith. That is given, ascribed, credited to him. That next phrase where it says that uh, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, there's been a lot written about this phrase and a lot of suggestions about what it might mean, sparing you a lot of details and arguments. What I believe is the most likely meaning is that it means something like faith from start to finish, beginning by faith and continuing by faith. The righteousness of God is revealed, how? By faith, from the beginning all the way through to the end. I want to read to you from Philippians chapter 3, a verse that I think really expresses this uh, idea and this doctrine very well. In Philippians 3, Paul is speaking about his own uh, experience in, in ministry and how he's suffered many things, but he's considered, he counts now everything that he once had as loss for the sake of knowing Christ, right? He says in verse 8, Indeed, I account everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And here's the verse I want you to hear. And be found in him. What does that mean? It means this. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, like by doing all the right things and obeying the law, but that righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 1.17. He's not just talking about the fact that we see that God has righteous character that we have not lived up to. He's actually saying there is righteousness that comes to us, that's imparted to us, that depends on faith. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God that's revealed in the gospel is actually given to us as a gift, and we are credited with righteousness. So how is it that the gospel is the power of God for salvation? Because the message of Christ crucified and raised for sinners shows us the righteous character of God that we could never hope to attain or appease by our own merit. And it imputes to us, it gives to us his very righteousness as our standing with him 
through faith in Christ. That's the message of the gospel in a nutshell. Sinners draw near to a righteous God and through faith in the completed work of Jesus in his life and death and resurrection are given as a gift the very righteousness that they could never attain on their own. We are counted righteous through faith in Christ. This is good news for all kinds of people. It's good news for the rebel. The one who is wayward and wandering and struggling with following and obeying God's commands and knows it. The one who feels far away from God. The prodigal who is squandering his life and resources on sin. It's good news for the rebel because it means this. Your standing before God is not compromised by your sin. Because it's secured for you by Christ's righteousness, given to you as a gift. You can't out-sin God's grace, because you can't taint God's righteous character. He is who he is, and he's given you that very character by Christ through faith. Your sin can't change that. You can't out-sin his grace. So to the rebel in the room, receive that comfort and confidence and calling. You are his. You are righteous in Christ. You can't compromise this with your own sin. On the other end of the spectrum, perhaps, is good news for the legalist. Remember the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal is out wasting all of his money and resources on sin. Meanwhile, the the proud older brother is back home having always kept the law. I've done all the right things and you're celebrating this guy, right? This is the guy who is very confident in his own righteousness. This is the person who is keeping the law of God to the best of his ability and he thinks he's doing a pretty good job at it, right? This is good news for the legalist too because it says this, your standing before God is not strengthened by your obedience, Because you've been made acceptable by someone else's righteousness. It's not your righteousness that makes you acceptable to God. Never could be. You can't increase God's favor by your obedience because you can't earn your way into his grace. So to the ones in the room who are feverishly struggling to obey God's word because you think it's going to make him like you better or it's going to make him nicer to you or somehow God's favor is going to be more upon your life because you're doing all the right things, hear this. It's not your righteousness that you're standing on, it's Christ's. It's his that he's given to you by faith, period. Not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for all who believe, the Jew first and then also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Last phrase, as it is written, The righteous shall live by faith. This is a quotation from the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk 2 verse 4. First of all, before we talk about what Habakkuk is saying at all, I think it's important to note that Paul quotes the Old Testament here to ground his argument. 
right? He says the gospel is the power of God. Why? Because in it, the, the righteousness of God is revealed. How do I know that? Let me quote an Old Testament prophet for you. What does that show us? This is the same story, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ is a continuation of and fulfillment of what came before it, which he's already been saying to us. He said that back in verse 2 of this letter already. At its core, the gospel is not a new way of salvation. It's simply a clearer, fuller picture of how salvation is accomplished and applied to God's people. And it's always been applied the same way, namely, righteousness by faith. God's grace that reveals and imparts his righteousness by faith. It's always been the same. It's just clearer now because of Christ. Now, what is Habakkuk? What's going on in Habakkuk? We can't spend a whole bunch of time there, but I'll give you a little bit of a summary. Habakkuk, the prophet, is lamenting, kind of pondering the age-old question of God's justice. How can a righteous God abide the wicked? How long will injustice go unpunished? Right? He's looking around him. He's looking at Babylon and all the wickedness that's running rampant. Meanwhile, they're prospering. He sees the prospering of Israel's enemies, and Habakkuk wonders, when will God punish the wicked and vindicate his people? That's a regular cry of the people of God, not just in Bible days, in our own day. How long will the wicked go unpunished? When will we be vindicated? And the answer comes in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. God says of Babylon, behold, his soul is puffed up. But the righteous shall live by his faith. In other words, the wicked puffs himself up in pride and arrogance, and his way will eventually end in destruction. But the ones who continue in faith, the ones who continue to trust God and his promises, will be counted righteous and will live and eventually be vindicated. Right? Don't mistake the apparent success of the wicked and the struggle of God's people for, to, to, to mean that God has forsaken his people or that the wicked will always prosper. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap, Galatians 6. So this doesn't mean the righteous shall live by faith. doesn't mean those who are righteous will choose to live by faith. So this is not a value exhortation. Well, if you want to be righteous, you should plan to live by faith, right? That's a righteous thing to do. That's not, that's not what he says. It means this. Those who are righteous are such because they live by faith. It's the faith that brings about the righteousness. It is those who live by faith who are counted righteous before God. Just like Abraham. Paul brings up his example in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, citing Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Right? It was his faith that made him righteous. Or it was on the basis of his faith that God declared him righteous. And so that's what is meant here. The righteous shall live by faith. It means when we trust, when we have faith in him and his word and his gospel, he counts us righteous. And that's where this righteousness revealed is good news and not bad news. We are declared righteous 
through our faith in him. Well, Luther found at long last peace and assurance upon discovering the righteousness of God is not a threat, but a gift. One more time to quote Luther. He says, I extolled my sweetest word, that word about the righteousness of God that he said earlier that he hated. I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the word righteousness of God. Thus, that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. Might it be the gate of paradise for you today? Sinners, burdened with guilt and sorrow, racked with fear and trembling concerning their rebellion, may find in the gospel of grace a respite of soul that they've never known. Friend, bring your burden to Christ and trust upon him. Therein lies the power of God for your salvation now and forever. Let's pray together.